We left off last episode with Gacy being taken into custody for possession of weed, which blossomed into the arrest for the abduction and murder of Rob Peast, thanks entirely to the planting of the photo receipt and the fabrication of the smell of death by the Displains Police Department. Essentially, after Gacy is transported from the hospital, he is directly led into an interrogation room. Now, before we jump into what goes down in those rooms for the next 29 hours, we need to jump back to the 20th. A lot went down on the 20th, and it all needs to be re-examined with the knowledge that by that date, the cops knew that they were getting their man because they had made it so by fixing the game, so to speak. So what has occurred with us because of the disclosures about the planted evidence is that it has forced us to look at everything from a different perspective. And that perspective is what the hell else did these guys do to make sure that Gacy went down for the peace killing. The bottom line is that everything from this point forward must be examined very closely in order to determine what inconsistencies exist in the various stories that we've been told over the last 43 years. Now back to the 20th of December. This was a busy day for Gacy as he was sensing that the police were closing in, which in fact they were, except the men on the street did not know what the men upstairs knew and they were proceeding as if it were business as usual. Now it's been difficult for us to ascertain what exactly had occurred to make Gacy feel that his arrest was imminent. I mean, he knew that they had not found Peace's body, and he further knew that they had not found anything that linked him to Peace during the search on the 13th. I believe that the most plausible scenario is that the relentless pursuit of him by the Displains police had him resigned to the fact that he was bound to end up in custody and in short order. This was, in fact, the first time during his entire six-year killing spree that he had been pursued so doggedly by any law enforcement agency. And the overwhelming sense that they were closing in must have weighed heavily on him as his actions on the 20th made it very clear that he knew that something was amiss. host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 10. Two stoned birds. At approximately 2.30 p.m. on the 20th, officers Schultz and Robinson relieved Albrecht and Hackmeister of their surveillance duty for the day. At this time, Gacy was hunkered up in an office building located at Milwaukee and Kimball. He was meeting with one of his many business associates there. After about 20 minutes, Gacy walks out of the building with David Cram in tow. But instead of walking directly to his rental car, he begins walking towards Bob and Ron, who were, of course, in an intense battle on their electronic football game. Before approaching them, Gacy stops and produces a camera, and then begins taking snapshots of Bob and Ron. Without saying a word, Gacy tucks the camera back into his jacket and proceeds to the passenger side of the rental vehicle, as Cram is driving the two of them on this particular day. Schultz notes in his log that Gacy did not appear to be in a very good mood. He also notes that Ron and himself weren't either. 
So now that it's been established that everyone was in a shitty mood, Cram takes off with the boys tailing him. They end up at City Hall, where Gacy instructs Cram to drive around the block until he exits the building. Now, City Hall in Chicago obviously houses the mayor's office, among many other city agencies. Remember, at this point in time, that Gacy was the Democratic precinct captain for his district. Did he go in to have a word with Mayor Belandic, who had succeeded Mayor Daley after his death back in 1976? Old Man Daley had run the most powerful Democratic machine in the country for two decades, and it was only his death that could stop that machine from chewing up and spitting out any detractors of his administration. Gacy had a personal relationship with Daley when he was alive, and this relationship will be explored in later episodes, as the perplexing issue of Gacy seeming to have a free pass as far as the Chicago police were concerned has to be looked into. Now, there's a prevailing theory that Michael Rossi was under the protection of Daley because his grandfather, Vito Marzullo, who was a powerful alderman from the 25th Ward, was Daley's right-hand man. This, too, will be examined in Season 2 of the Gacy Tapes. In the meantime, Gacy's in City Hall for about a half an hour as Cram circles the block at least eight times before Gacy exits the building. Cram scoops him up, and off they go, to a heating company that's also located in the Loop, which is the colloquial term used to describe the business sector of downtown Chicago, which is owned by another of Gacy's vast network of friends. So Gacy's in there for about 15 minutes, and then he jumps in the car and they take off to less on drugs, another one of Gacy's remodel jobs. While Gacy's in the pharmacy, Cram gets out of the car and comes back to Ron and Bob and tells them that Gacy's going to fix them all up with women tonight and that he's going to foot the entire bill. Now, Bob and Ron play along and tell Cram that that sounds like a great time, and they're down with the plan. Bob Schultz feels compelled to tell Cram, hey, you're driving like a giant asshole, and that your driving might be worse than Gacy's, which is a very high bar to hurdle. Cram takes that into consideration. It changes nothing as far as how he decides to drive for the rest of the day, though. Gacy then exits Lesson and gets into the car. Cram floors it, and they end up on Pulaski and Elston where both Gacy and Cram begin working on securing prostitutes for the evening. That ends up going nowhere. Cram later tells Bob that the girls wanted too much money, and Gacy just wasn't willing to meet their asking price. So Cram drives himself home and exits the vehicle. Gacy then hops into the driver's seat and drives himself home. Schultz notes in his log that he found it interesting that Gacy did not invite them into the house on this occasion, but instead left the boys outside, who passed the time by, yeah, you guessed it, playing the electronic football game. About 30 minutes pass, and Gacy bursts out of the side door of his house, quote, looking madder than a hornet, end quote, and the boys inquired into where John is heading, to which he replies that the asshole, which is how Gacy exclusively and affectionately referred to Kozenzak, boy, if he only knew what was coming the next day, he'd really think he was an asshole, saying that he had overstepped his bounds, and from this point forward, he would be telling them jack shit. So Gacy jumps into the rental and tears out of the driveway. He hits the expressway and is driving in an excess of 100 miles an hour, weaving in and out of traffic. Schultz turns to Rob and says, if I can get close enough, I'm going to force this bastard off the road. So brace yourself, Ronnie. Oh, and put the electronic football game in the glove box, you know, so it's safe. Before Schultz can get close enough to Gacy's car to make a move, Gacy gets off the interstate nearly losing the fellas, 
but to no avail. Eventually, they end up at Rossi's house. Now, Schultz and Robinson knew that Rossi wasn't home because he had been at the police station for about eight hours that day, and Detective Adams had just radioed that he and Tovar were bringing Rossi home. This clarified what Gacy had been so pissed about. Tovar and Adams arrive, dropping Rossi off. Gacy approaches him without saying a word. They then proceed into Rossi's second-floor apartment. They would remain there for about two hours. Clearly, Gacy's grilling Rossi about what they had asked and what he had answered down at the station. When Gacy finally appears, he walks up to the car and informs the guys that he's incredibly pissed with the asshole and that they were going to be taking a long ride, at least an hour, so they better buckle up. Schultz notices that his gas gauge is hovering on E. He tells Ronnie that it looks like he's going to be riding solo on this trip. Gacy gets in his car and guns it. The three vehicles are all driving in excess of 100 miles per hour on the Eden's Expressway. Schultz gets off the first exit that he can, and he speeds to the first open gas station that he can find. He proceeds to pump $7 worth of gas into his vehicle, and due to time constraints, throws both the gas pump and $7 worth of dimes to the ground, and off he goes. Schultz hits speeds of 115 miles an hour, and he finally catches up to Robinson and Gacy, just as they are pulling into the offices of attorney Sam Amaranti. As they pull in, Schultz radios to Lang their location as their shift has ended. In a matter of minutes, Albrecht and Hackmeister arrive to sit on Gacy's lawyer's office. It would turn out to be a long, cold night sitting in the parking lot of Gacy's lawyer. Now, what happens next is crucial to what occurs when Gacy is in custody, after he's been returned from the hospital and after he's been charged with the abduction and murder of Robert Peast, because as legend has it, it was on this night, December 20th, that Gacy proceeds to drink a half a bottle of VO in Amaranti's office, and then proceeds to confess to all of his crimes. At this juncture in the case, my father had not been retained by Gacy as of yet. Now, that occurs a few days later, after all the damage is done. Heading into the production of this podcast, I had assumed that it would be a foregone conclusion that Amaranti would happily avail himself to me to be interviewed. Yet, to my great surprise, Sam refused to be interviewed, either because he wanted money or wasn't willing to discuss the case in depth with me. Or maybe it was both. In light of the disclosures of the planted evidence and the fact that it has changed the way that we look at every aspect of this case and the narrative that has been thrust upon us for the past 40 years, it's probably in Amaranti's best interest that he not subject himself to an examination of the case by me, because I have some questions for him that would be very uncomfortable for him to try and answer. All that being said, we fortunately have my father available to us, because, well, I gave him no choice. But he comes in later. For now, I will reference Amaranti's book, Defending a Monster, see what he claims happens that fateful night in his office. But before we get to that, we were very curious to see how Mr. Amaranti addressed the issue of the photo receipt in his book, which was published in 2012 by Skyhorse Publishing. In chapter 6, on pages 77 and 78, he includes two photographs of Detective Kautz's narrative of the search on the 13th, which I referred to in episode 8, which of course, as we know, does not indicate that the photo receipt was located in the kitchen garbage can. Oddly enough, Amaranti did not include a photograph of Evidence Tech Humbert's report, which I read in its entirety to you in Episode 8. 
Remember, Humbert was the guy taking the pictures, marking and bagging the items, and keeping a detailed log to establish a chain of custody. Now, Amaranti on page 78 of his book deals with the most crucial piece of evidence alleged to have been found during the search on the 13th and the only piece of evidence that existed in linking his client to Peast in the following manner. Quote, also found but not listed on the original report was a receipt for photographs, which had been dropped off for development at Nissan Pharmacy. This item was recovered from the garbage bag inside the kitchen of the Gacy home. No, it wasn't. A supplemental report was filed regarding this item. No, there wasn't. End quote. That's it. So at the time that Amaranti wrote the book and had clearly had dug through the old police reports just like we did, he deals with the fact that the photo receipt wasn't listed as being found in the house by completely ignoring Humbert's report altogether. And then referencing a supplemental report that simply does not exist. Why, at the time of writing this book, if he finally discovers what they didn't discover at the time of trial, which is that the damn receipt appears out of nowhere, doesn't he acknowledge it at all? It reeks of something. I'm not sure of what. Insincerity, denial, embarrassment, complicity. Yikes. It certainly gives context to his decision not to allow me to interview him, though. That is for damn sure. Don't worry, we'll reach out to him again. Can't make any promises, though. Hey, y'all, Bob here. So I just want to let you guys know why I love Nom Nom, the sponsor of the show. That's because our dog, Nanook, who's been an intricate part of our family for the last four years, is the pickiest eater out of any dog on the planet. We would give him the best of the best in terms of dry food, and the guy just was not having it. That all changed when the first box of Nom Nom came to our house. I cut open the package. I like to treat him a little bit, so I heat it up just a little bit, put it in a bowl, gone instantly. Every single time, the dude loves Nom Nom. I can tell by the way he just devours it because I've never seen him eat like that before. And the reason that he loves it is because that Nom Nom's made with real, wholesome ingredients that you can see when you pour it into the bowl. It's like you can actually see the meat, you can see the vegetables. It's unbelievable. And they personalize it to your dog's needs. So it brings out their very best. I mean, this guy has boundless energy these days. I bring him out on his walks and he's doing all the things that he loves to do. He's running and jumping and playing, tails going a million miles an hour. It's an amazing product and it really has changed our dog's life, and our dog is such a huge, huge part of our life. It makes me feel good about what we've been able to do for him. So I cannot recommend more. If you have a dog in your life, treat them. Treat them like the king or the queen that they are in your family, and go right now for 50% off for your no-risk two-week trial at nom.com slash dd. That is nom.com slash dd for 50% off with a guarantee return if your dog doesn't love it. And I can guarantee you, you're not going to be returning anything. Again, that is nom.com slash dd for 50% off. You can thank me later. Now that we've introduced Amaranti into the narrative, the final piece of the puzzle can be discussed as to why, on December 19th, the plan to plant the evidence was formulated by, at the very least, Kozenzak, but most likely, and others. And on the 21st, the plan was put into action. 
And that piece of the puzzle is this, that on December 19th, attorney Leroy Stevens, the attorney that was present during Gacy's first interview with Kozenzak back on the 13th, who allowed his client to write out and sign a statement, who is also in no way, shape, or form a criminal defense attorney, he filed a petition for temporary restraining order prepared by Amaranti in federal court against the city of Des Plaines, and specifically against the Des Plaines Police Department on behalf of their client, John Wayne Gacy. Now, you may be asking yourself, Bob, what is a TRO? Well, I'm glad you asked, because it's your favorite time, and it's my favorite time. It's definition time. Both the state and federal statutes define a TRO, or a temporary restraining order, as an equitable remedy that is issued in exceptional and emergency circumstances when necessary to preserve the status quo until the court has an opportunity to rule on a motion for preliminary injunction. In plain English, please, Bob? Okay. It's a lawsuit that is filed with the court where the party who filed it is asking for the court to order that a party either do something or stop doing something until the court can conduct a full hearing to hear argument and be presented with evidence to reach the conclusion of whether the temporary relief sought should be made permanent. So in Gacy's case, the TRO was seeking to have the court order that the displays cops stop following Gacy around 24 hours a day. That matter was scheduled to be heard on December 22nd, 1978. If that TRO was granted on the 22nd, which most likely it would have been considering that they had been all over Gacy like stink on shit for what would be at that point 11 days and that they had collected zero evidence connecting Gacy to peace disappearance because no court would have viewed the lack of evidence coupled with the fact that Gacy was a successful and reputable businessman with political connections as anything but police harassment. End result, the investigation into Peace's disappearance would have come to a screeching halt, plain and simple. So now you have the complete picture of the immense pressure that the Displains Police Department was under to number one, find evidence connecting Gacy to Peace, and two, to get Gacy under arrest. Because if it wasn't going to happen now, it wasn't going to happen. Ever. Because you could be damn sure if Gacy would have escaped this close of a call, cement would have been poured in that crawl space the very next day. So that photo receipt was their desperation move to make sure that Terry Sullivan didn't walk into federal court on December 22nd with nothing more than his thumb lodged firmly up his own ass. As it turned out, Sullivan didn't need it for federal court, but Larry Finder needed it to get the warrant on the 21st, which made the TRO hearing on the 22nd moot. They had, in fact, killed two birds with one stone. Let's head back to the evening of the 20th and see what's happening with Gacy at Amaranti's office. Albrecht and Hackmeister relieved Robinson and Schultz at about 11.30 p.m., right when Gacy is heading into Amaranti's office. We asked Mike 
what was going on while Gacy was behind closed doors with his lawyer. When we start our shift, uh, Sergeant Lang, who was the, uh, the sergeant of the, the Delta unit, would take us, Dave and I, to wherever Schultz and uh, Robinson were. And we had our uh, communication was portable radios, which didn't have a lot of areas you could be. Uh, and we were on a, a, a special band, actually the public works band. Um, and so we would find out where they're at. And uh, this night they were in Park Ridge at Sam Amarani's office in uh, downtown Park Ridge. So we went to, went there. Casey's car was in front. Uh, and usually Dave and I and those two would, if you went into a place that they weren't going in, they'd separate a little bit, you know, so in case. Uh, and there was a back entrance to, uh, uh, you know, under the, the parking deck for uh, this office building. Because you got into the office building and uh, Amarani's office was on the list and there was left and there was, a, you know, vestibule area for the whole building, you know, and then he had a waiting area in his office. So we're there. Uh, those guys leave and we're there, uh, you know, midnight. Midnight it was the 21st. So we, uh, we're there and we're there for a few hours. And uh, Gacy was there with Stevens, his other, was I think his business attorney. He wasn't a criminal attorney, and that's just a cop you love, an attorney that's not a. So he was there with Stevens and Amarani. And I, I knew Sam from his days when he was a PD defendant. In fact, from what I was told is that was his first private client. So um, we were there. The lights on in the in the in the office of Amarani. We can't see anything. You know, there's shears or whatever. And there for a while, and then finally, I I told Davis as well. You know, he could have gone out the back with them, and right there in the, in Chicago, that's just you know right next to Chicago, and there was this, uh, a Northwest Highway. There's a bunch of restaurants and bars that are open all the time. So I took a quick ride over to make sure they weren't in any of those. Come back, said nothing there because Dave stayed there then. And couldn't go too far because we want to make sure we had radio contact. So we come back and wait for a little while. And we finally both decide, this, we got to find out what's going on. So we get out and we're walking up to the building. And I was going to knock on the, the, the windows uh, to get them out. And just as, just as we get to the building, those two come out of Sam's office into the vestibule of the building. And they invite us in. And they bring out chairs to the university in that vestibule for the whole office building. And they couldn't be nicer to us. What do you guys want? You want some booze or whatever? You know, take whatever you, you know, we'll get whatever you want. We'll take care of you. You just can't let Gacy leave. So um, this goes on back and forth. And then um, we're talking for a while. And uh, finally, I say to, to Sam, I said, well, listen, you know, you're, whole, you're very nice. We appreciate everything you're doing for us. But, you know, we're here to see Gacy and watch Gacy. And we haven't seen Gacy since we started. We got to know where John is. And um, so they say, well, don't worry about it because he's in his office and he's sleeping. Well, we had talked to, like I had said earlier, we go in at night uh, after we get done at noon, rather, and we'd find out some of the information that was going on in the case as far as that. And one thing we... Uh, they were told, they were conveyed to us, was that uh, sometimes when Gacy got up in the morning or whatever, 
he could be very violent. He just didn't know what he was going to do. He just would go nuts sometimes. He'd be angry or whatever it may be, but prone to violence a lot. So, and to be very honest with you, it was nothing that we had planned. But after Sam says that, Dave and I, and Sam has a different little perspective as far as what went on that night than, than I did. But uh, we step back and say, well, just be careful. Because when Gacy wakes up, you never know what he's going to do. We've been told that he can be a real animal. He's violent and on and on with that. And they both get this kind of look on their face like, oh, shit. And obviously what we didn't know was Gacy had just confessed to them that he had killed 33 people. And now we're telling them this guy who's back there sleeping with you. He wakes up, he could be. And so they said, okay, we'll get John. So what they do is they go back and because uh, this was a separate entrance to, to his office, and they go back and there's this waiting area, you know, just like you have in your office here, um, with a couch in it, and they they go back and they're they're both kind of pushing me along a little bit, not, not touching them really, but just kind of guide because it looked like Gacy never even wakes up, um, because and he gets down on the on the on the couch and is asleep again. Like I had said, they told us, you know, you can't let Gacy leave. You know, if he tries to leave, you got to shoot his tires out, and on and on and on. And we're, you know, that conversation went back and forth, and that's when they told us about he's in the back sleeping. So um, when we're sitting there, and Sam opens the book up, writes the defendant, and he's sitting right across from Gacy on the chair, and, and he never looks at the book. He just stares at Gacy. I mean, he's just staring at Gacy. The other attorney, Stevens, he leaves because uh, he's apparently going to court the next morning. He wants to get ready for court because he's going to federal court to get our surveillance stopped. Um, and so um, we're, we're there for a little while longer, and uh, finally we're not here. So I'm going to go get cigarettes and coffee for Dave and I. So I get Sam's attention bring him out and tell him what I'm going to do. No, you don't have to go. Whatever you guys want, I'll take care of it. I'll get somebody to go get, tell me what you want. I'm going to say, Sam, we appreciate it. That's very nice, but I'm going to take it right. And when I leave, though, Dave has to go outside because um, radio transmission with these portable radios, especially in a building like that, if I was a quarter mile away, we'd be lost. And so I didn't. we didn't want to lose communication with each other. So we went out. Sam locked his door, and sat out in the chairs that we were sitting in till we come back. Then Leroy Stevens comes back, and he comes out. He doesn't even go in the office there. He locks the door because Sam's going to, this is, you know, maybe 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning, then maybe a little bit later than that. Stevens comes out, and he sits with us, brings another chair out. He's sitting between. Dave's on one side. I'm on the other side. And this time he could smoke in a building, but he took out a cigarette, and he's talking to us, you know, like he's impressed with himself, obviously, but he's taking a drag of a cigarette, never lights it. But he's taking a heavy drag, and he go back and he exhale, and finally, and he's talking the whole time. So finally, I kind of lean back in my chair and I look, Dave, I said, yeah, never lit the cigarette. And which was, so we knew something was going on. I mean, something happened, and we didn't know what it was. So, um, we go back there when people start coming into the building, you know, the office building. We leave and we go out to our cars. Uh, it wasn't too long, maybe eight thirty, something like that. Gacy comes out and we're parked, you know, where we were. 
and he's very hunchbacked, uh, head down, uh, and walk into his car very quickly, gets into his car, and we're like right downtown Chicago, um, downtown Park Ridge, and he takes off. I'm right behind him. Dave, you know, he had to get his car turned around, so he was a little bit further behind. Uh, and this is like 8.30, quarter to 9 in the morning. Kids are walking to school. It's kind of slick out in December. It was chilly. And we're doing probably 70 miles an hour through this residential neighborhood. So while the guys are waiting impatiently for Gacy to come out, Amaranti claims that Gacy asks for something to drink and starts spilling his guts about killing at least 30 people. Oddly enough, as I read through Sam's book, this confession that took place in Sam's office is nearly identical to the stories that I possess on Gacy's tapes. Bob, to the best of my knowledge, this, this whole thing, I don't recall any of it. But just from reading it and moving from room to room in there, it seems like they, they fed me the questions and then they fed me half of the answers. Almost as if they knew the answers before they asked me the question, like they got them from somebody else. No, I, I don't recall. I don't recall any of it. I don't even recall talking to these guys. Do you recall talking about Cram and Rossi at all? You don't recall talking about anything? I don't recall the, the whole thing. And then going past this, do you recall Sam being there and giving the statement to him? I recall Sam being called in, and I think Sam was trying to explain my rights to me. But, you know, everything, I don't recall it. I, I think I did give a statement in Sam's presence and Leroy's presence. I think there was a room full of people there. But I don't know what I said, and I, th I didn't think it lasted long. I don't think it was more than five or ten minutes. I don't know. You said here that there were four Johns. I don't recall. You know who was talking then? I don't know. Not the John Gacy I'm talking to right now. No, not just from the way it just, you know, here it says here. Gacy said that there were four Johns. He doesn't know all of the personalities. Just from the, the uh, I don't know, just from the way the thing was written. That, uh, here I explained the, the line for what it was used for, and that was for the odor underneath the house. And then, then here it says, I, I hesitate and said, what we found there. And I don't, then they must have said to me what they found there, because I don't know what they were talking about. That's in the second paragraph. Then in the, the fourth paragraph here, how many bodies were in a crawl space? Wasn't sure how many bodies were in a crawl space. Uh, all, of, all of these things. I don't, I don't recall any of this. Just like here it says in the sixth paragraph here, it says, Gacy says, who else do, do we have in the police station and that there are others involved? That would have to be coming from Hanley because how the hell would I know? You know, yeah, it's just like when you ask the question, why do I cover for Rossi and Cram? 
I don't feel I was covering for them. I don't know what, you know, what they did if they did do anything. I don't recall. I, I, like I told you, I just know that I could not have done all of that. Uh, and again, like what, what stuns me is when there, there's so many bodies in, in, in 76, 77, and 78. I was never around. The way I look at the statement is uh, all of the statements. You never say. Uh, the only thing it shows is some kind of knowledge, not necessarily your knowledge, but maybe knowledge of someone else within you, another personality. And even then, it says that they killed themselves. I mean, it's not a confession. Uh, they're, they're claiming this to be a confession? No, but they can't term it with the newspapers. They get a hold of it. These statements are not confessions. Even if you take them at their face value, you're saying that these guys killed themselves. The most they impart is knowledge, but you don't have the knowledge. Now, we're not implying that Gacy did not, in fact, make some kind of statement with Amaranti on the 20th, because, well, I wasn't there. I am merely pointing out that the conversation that Gacy is saying he doesn't remember having nearly mirrors the conversations that Amaranti claims in his book occurred in his office. And when I say mirrors, I mean nearly word for word. As we go through the statements that Gacy gives to Albrecht on the 21st, which is what my father is using during his taped interviews to question Gacy, what you will hear will be nearly identical to what is contained in Amaranti's book about what he heard on the 20th. Now, maybe Amaranti couldn't recall what his client told him 30-odd years prior. So they used the police reports that contain the written narratives of Gacy's statements for the book. But when a client goes to their attorney and discloses incredibly sensitive information, such as confessing to 30-plus murders, that information is privileged, meaning that the attorney is forbidden from sharing that information with anyone because it's protected by attorney-client privilege. The exception to this is when a client tells their attorney about a crime that they are committing in the future. That is not protected by attorney-client privilege. So when we are matching up what Gacy allegedly tells Amaranti on the 20th and what Gacy then, 24 hours later, tells the police, they are nearly identical. And that fact immediately raises red flags because the number one rule that a defense attorney advises their client is to not talk to the police, especially if your attorney is not present. It's known that Gacy was seeing Amaranti regularly during the 10 days of the investigation. Is it possible that he didn't advise his client during that entire time frame not to say anything to the police? That seems incredible to me. Sam's a good lawyer. He's a retired judge. He knew the law. Maybe the fact that Gacy was fast friends with his pursuers clouded the issue as to whether Gacy could speak to them in that limited capacity, since he was not being held in custody. But they are cops. Anything that Gacy might have said that was a statement against his interests would have been admissible in court. Whether he was in custody 
or not. According to his book, Gacy then falls asleep in his chair after confessing for hours. He then awakes at some point and is walking around as if he's sleepwalking. And Moranti claims that he gets him onto the couch in his office and Gacy falls back to sleep. Attorney Leroy Stevens apparently was also there for this entire meeting. And Amaranti claims that immediately upon hearing Gacy's confession, that right then and there, he knew his client was, quote, fucked in the head. And Stevens and Amaranti start desperately searching for a locked down mental health facility in order to get Gacy committed because he presents an imminent threat of harm to others or himself. He claims that they strike gold with Weiss Memorial Hospital who is planning to send a psychiatrist to meet them at Amaranti's office at 9 in the morning. He then states that Gacy wakes up and has zero recollection of confessing to anything. And further, that there's no way in hell that he's going to any mental hospital. Amaranti tells Gacy that he told them everything, about the 30 murders, about the crawl space, everything. Gacy blows it off and says he's got important shit to do. And he ends up leaving Amaranti's office with Albrecht and Hackmeister following him out. Now, I find it incredibly compelling that in Sam's book, he doesn't mention anything about advising his client not to speak to the cops. He doesn't mention anything about him asserting his client's Sixth Amendment right to counsel on behalf of his clients to the very two cops that are sitting in his waiting room and that have been tailing his client for nine days. Nothing. Now, the entire point of trying to figure out what actually happened in that office and what Gacy may or may not have said or what Amaranti may or may not have advised his client can best be clarified by what Albrecht and Hackmeister say occurred after Gacy's alleged confession to his lawyer. When listening to these clips... Remember what I just told you about attorney-client privilege. The last day of his freedom, on the 21st, we relieved Shulson Robinson at his attorney's office in Park Ridge. And Gacy's already in the building speaking to the attorneys. And we had, <clears throat> I don't want to say an adversarial relationship with the attorneys, but, you know, they were doing their job and we were doing ours. So, you know, it wasn't all that uh, smooth. They didn't seem to really care too much about our investigation or our well-being. Uh, and then we happened to be, after the transition between the two teams sitting out there, uh, I think it was about two in the morning, uh, Sam Amirani came out and waved Mike. Mike was sitting in the front of the building and my car was parked in the back. And he asked Mike, he says, hey, why don't you guys come on in? He says, uh, "It's I know it's super cold out there, and Casey's going to be in here for a while, so why don't you guys just come in? So Mike says, well, let me talk to my partner about it, and I'll let you know. So Mike gets on the radio with me, and he says, man, something's up. You know, these guys are now starting to care about us being cold out here. And he says, that never has happened. You know, it's like <laughs> they would rather have us freeze out there than, than go back to the police station. So we knew something was up. You know, we said, I got to bet maybe he confessed to, to the attorney. So we decided, okay. And Mike told, got a hold of Sam and said, okay, Sam, listen, we'll come in, but we have to see Gacy. I mean, there's no way 
we're going to go in there, have him slip out the back, and our jobs are gone. You know, so we'll come in there, but we have to have an eyeball on Gacy. And he says, yeah, no problem. He's kind of snoozing in the back, you know, so. So as we go in, they're bringing Gacy out of the back room, and there's a hallway with a glass wall that shows the reception area of their office. And there's a couple of chairs and a couch in there. So they bring Gacy out, and Gacy is like comatose. I mean, he's half passed out. He can barely walk. And they set him on the couch, and he lays down and passes out or goes to sleep. And then the attorney comes out, and we BS in the hallway for quite a while. And we're really getting vibes from the attorneys, you know, that he made a confession. They they seem to be pretty concerned about Gacy and actually kind of afraid of him. So Mike and I kind of played on that a little bit. And uh, at this point, Mike and I could read each other. We really didn't have to verbalize anything. And we were able to decide, hey, we're going to tell some stories about Gacy that are, might alarm the attorneys to see what kind of reaction we get. So we start talking about how, well, at certain times late at night when Gacy gets up and he takes off, he's like a madman. I mean, the guy's got evil in his eye and his veins are sticking out of his neck. And, you know, we feel that he could be pretty dangerous from what we've seen over the 10 days that we've been with him. And we could tell the attorneys are, you know, really getting concerned about what we've seen in the past. So that goes on and on. And then finally, uh, I think it was about four o'clock in the morning, Mike decides, and I decide we're going to tell the attorneys that Mike's going to go out and have breakfast. And um, he just needs to take a break. He's going to get some cigarettes and take a breakfast. And I'm going to step outside, too, because we feel like it's it's way too dangerous just to have one policeman in there with Gacy. And the attorney's eyes really got big. And we thought, okay, I think we got these guys. <clears throat> and, of course, you know, in hindsight, he had just confessed to killing 33 people. I mean, who would have ever heard that? Nobody, No one's heard that before. So, of course, they had great right to be alarmed being in there by themselves with Gacy. So they tried to talk us out of it, but we decided, hey, we're going to step outside. So we go outside and we go about a half a block down and watch them through the binoculars and they're pacing up and down the hallway and they will not take their eyes off of Gacy. And we said, yeah, obviously Gacy confessed to him. We didn't realize the extent, but he confessed to him. So we go back in finally. And, um, so now they're saying, hey, listen, if Gacy tries to leave, I think Sam Amarani told us this, if Gacy tries to leave, you know, shoot his tires out. We can't say much about him, but all I can say is shoot his tires out. And we're like, Sam, you know, there's like hundreds of thousands of people around here. Now it's, you know, it's rush hour traffic, like six in the morning in Park Ridge. There's no way we can do anything like that. So anyway, Gacy does wake up and true to form, he wakes up like a bull. And I mean, he just, snaps to it, comes out of his unconscious state and uh, kicks the door open and runs outside and jumps in his car and takes off. And Mike and I are in hot pursuit behind him. So Amaranti says something to the effect of, if this guy is getting away, you guys need to stop him. And I'm going to leave that sitting right there for you to digest. Because if Gacy really didn't remember telling Amaranti about his heinous crimes, 
he sure knew after Amaranti tells him specifically what he said during the meeting. So Gacy leaves that office knowing that the only person he has ever disclosed his terrible secret to is his lawyer with whom he has attorney-client privilege. So in theory, the secret is safe. However, at some point between when Gacy leaves Amaranti's office and when he is being interrogated by the police on the 21st, the cops have somehow learned this information. Now, when we first interviewed Mike Albrecht, he had an explanation as to how the cops knew that Gacy had murdered 33 people. And that was that David Cram had come up to him on the 21st when he's in his car and told him that Gacy had just told him that he had confessed to his attorney that he had killed 30 people. Let's hear what Mike has to say about it. So, and this is getting towards noon. And so we go there. Um, and I'm across the street in a, a band and gas station. Dave's parking lot or something like that. And those Schultz and uh, Robbins are coming to relieve us. Um, and we get in the car with um, Lang. And we don't get two blocks away. Cram had come out and started talking to uh, Bob and tells him Gacy had just told him that he was with attorneys all night, which we had told these guys, you know, someone gave a brief thing of what was going on and get ready. And that he had been with his attorneys all night and told his attorneys that he had killed 33 people. Now he was meeting with his attorneys. And from there, they were going to the cemetery in Niles where his father was buried and was going to commit suicide. So uh, we immediately turn around, Lang turns around, and we get back, and I go to jump in a car with Gacy, uh, excuse me, with uh, with Bob Schultz, and he starts driving away because the door's like, unlock the door. And so get in. He tells me what Cram had told him. So we're going down west on Elston Avenue and uh, get on the radio then, get a hold of Kozenzak, because this was, you know, noon. Tell him what we've got, you know, what do you want us to do? So he says, stand by a little bit. He was, I mean, was going to talk with Sullivan to find out what's going on. So uh, we're going down else, and we're side by side with uh, Dave and Rod in the other car, and then, you know, Gacy's in front of us. And um, pretty soon they come back and they get on the radio, and they, we tell them what's going on again. Yeah, because I think Sullivan was beckoning. And they say, well, do what you got to do. What? That's the instruction we're getting. Do it. So that's when, remember about the, the marijuana. And we're up next to those two. And obviously, just to confirm it, that Dave still had the, the marijuana. Obviously. So we decided to take him down on the marijuana. And then at uh, Milwaukee and Devon is where we, Milwaukee and Oakton is where we actually pull up next to him, pull him out of the car, kind of rough a little bit and, uh, put him in the back of uh, the car uh, with uh, Bob and I and took him to the station. And... Now, we believe almost everything Mike Albrecht has ever told us, but I'm just not sure if I believe this story. And the primary reason I don't believe it is because that that bit of information 
was not used in the complaint for the warrant on the 21st. And I'm talking specifically about a known associate of Gacy's who had lived in Gacy's home for at least six months in 1977, had said that? Well, there is no way in hell that that information would not have made its way into the complaint for warrant. I think that there is a much more likely scenario of what occurred, and I'm going to leave it to you to try and figure it out. At this point, it's incumbent upon Darren and myself to thank our patrons, our members of the defense team. Those of you who have gone to www.patreon.com backslash defense diaries, your amazing support means the world to us. So here's a big shout out to Kelly Guftison and to Katie Cousins and to Kurt Mariucci. You guys are amazing and there's so many more. We love you guys. Uh, Anybody else who wants to, to join the team, we will, of course, give you the same type of love. So, like always, we thank you guys for joining us, because without you, I'd just be some old man talking about an old case. See you on the next episode. <laughs>